I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to the Hedge School podcast. The Hedge School was born from my belief that the personal, social, and environmental problems we're facing today have arisen not just as a result of our profound disconnection from the world around us, but a lack of rootedness in our ancestral traditions. The Hedge School, then, is about building a new folk culture, but one which is deeply rooted in the native traditions of Ireland and the British Isles. It's about practical guidance for living well, living authentically, and above all, connecting with our places, listening to the land's dreaming, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate earth. It's about reclaiming ancient wisdom, not to hark back or try to recreate the past, but to use that wisdom to help us build authentic traditions for today. In our podcast series, we offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. The wisdom contained in myth and folk tales, connecting with our places, reclaiming our indigenous roots, the practice of traditional crafts and old ways of knowing, and so much more. If all this resonates with you, do come and join the discussion in our online communities. You can find out all you need to know at www.thehedgeschool.org. So I'm here today with uh, Sylvia Victor Lindstedt, who's a writer of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, all of which is very much steeped in the mythic. And Sylvia is originally from California, but I'm talking to her from beautiful Crete in Greece. Welcome, Sylvia. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much, Sharon, for having me. And we have spoken before over the years. Uh, Sylvia was an interviewee for my book, If Women Rose Rooted, three years ago now, I suppose that was. And that was when you were living in California. And we will get to a discussion of some of the things that we talked about then, which was basically place and the stories of place and fairy tales and all of the things that are related to place. So we're going to come back to that. But first of all, I I'd love it if you could tell us something about your recent book, The Wild Folk, which was a kind of fairy tale-ish book for, for children. I can't remember what age it was aimed at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, um, it's for children ages 8 to 12, roughly. It's, you know, it's what they call middle grade. I think it's probably at the higher end of that, just some complicated words. <laughs> it's like It doesn't quite fit into a category very well, but middle grade, so 8 to 12. And the, the first one was published last year in June, The Wild Folk, and actually the sequel, so it's two books that together create the whole story. It's coming out in May, in a couple months, published by Usborne. It's set in kind of a, an imaginary version of Point Reyes, the Point Reyes Peninsula, which I know we talked about that landscape in your book, but I kind of used this, this beautiful pen- peninsula on the coast of California as the as the landscape for a fantasy story, kind of, you know, so all the animals and all the plants are actually ones that I know, but then I turned it into an island called Farallon, um, where the children, the two main characters in the book have their adventures with the wild folk, where the mythic beings that they're kind of like the spirits are the, you know, the, how you say, genius loci, the, the spirits of the land. And what what was your, what were you aiming at with that book? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't just aimed at being a nice story to entertain kids. There probably was a little bit of an ecological message in there somewhere. Just a little bit, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I started writing it five, gosh, five years ago. 
and you know the message in it felt important then but it didn't feel quite so real i mean it's amazing how of course it felt real then but it's like between five years ago and now suddenly i think we're facing um the reality of kind of an environmental catastrophe a bit more um, in our faces than we were then and just with trump as president in the u.s um, and so the message you know that i had initially with it you know, there's this kind of classic conflict in the book between the people in the city in Fairlawn and this magical island and the people in the country and the people in the city, the, the brothers of these sort of evil cloisters in the city um, are trying to take this magical substance called star gold from the land in the country, which is, it's basically like oil in a way, but it's, it's also the life force of the land more literally in a more mythic and magical sense the two main characters, the children in the book, are basically called upon by the, the wild folk who are the protectors of the land in the country, you know, in the wild spaces, to kind of reconnect the broken pieces in this world. Kind of, so there's this, there's this sense of, almost like deep ecology, like the sense of all the pieces in nature being interconnected and that the children need to reweave these pieces, help to reweave them in order to save the land from kind of the greed and violence of these city people who are seeing the landscape only as an object, you know, to be exploited um, and not as many beings that have their own, their own, you know, lives and value outside of human need. It's a pretty strong environmental message, actually. <laughs> Interesting. And, and do you find that kids who live in cities hate you for it? You know, so far, no. You know, this was something that I was worried about when I actually, I, maybe I wouldn't say I was worried about it when I was writing it initially, but with my editor, you know, we were talking about this, just not wanting to create such a black and white dichotomy, you know, between mm. city and, and country. And I, I hope that I, when I'm explaining it right now, it sounds a little bit black and white, but I hope that in the book, it's clear that, um, you know, there are good people in the city and bad people in the country and bad people in the city and good people in the country. And that one of the main characters is a boy from the city and the other is a girl from the country. And so they kind of bring together their skills and their life experience in order to save this, this world. And the idea really is actually like a reweaving of the city back into the country. So in a way it's like the, the thing maybe that I'm objecting to is not urban versus rural, you know, but the way that in our consciousness, these spaces are, made so separate and that you know maybe when we're in urban spaces sometimes we can forget that actually it's you know it's still the same water it's still the same soil it's still the same food you know everything is still coming from the same place it's we're all just as deeply interconnected whether we're in the city or in the country and i hope that's clear in the book so far lots of kids in london like it so <laughs> okay i don't know about lots <laughs> well that's some, good. some that i know of yeah, that's a good start. That's a very good start. So you have been, um, I can't remember, was it last year on uh, quite a big tour uh, with the book? Uh, you were in England, yes. you're actually in Ireland, I think as well. And you've been talking to various schools and um, kids groups, I think, from what I remember about it. What was their reaction to that message about about the world and about what we're doing to it. Did you find that they knew already that there was a problem and that they were interested and engaged with it? Or was this something that was quite new to them as an idea? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I was speaking to pretty big groups of kids at once. 
like, so a whole auditorium kind of of about 300 children. So I didn't get to, I didn't get a huge sense about, I'm trying to think of how I was reading the group. Like, what was it that made them excited, you know? Because it's quite a task when you're talking to 300 kids. It's like, okay, how do I keep yeah. them engaged for an hour? Yeah. You know, what's the way in? What's the way in with this? And I think um, I noticed that the, the thing that made them the most, the, feel the most connected was when I spoke about animals and animal tracking right. and our connection mm. with animals as the way in. I think mm-hmm. sometimes some of these concepts are too big not that they don't understand, but it's not very, it's, I mean, it's not very interesting, right? When we talk about, I, I wonder if it's the same way that sometimes for us as adults, not that it's not interesting, but that almost you can hear this message so often. We need to mm-hmm. save the environment. We need to help the earth. Like things are really bad that we almost shut down a little bit because it's so big right. and, and catastrophic feeling. And I wonder if children do this too in a way and can't find something to connect to um, or to understand, to bring it home. So I found that, you know, we did this exercise at the end after I spoke about the book and the landscape that it was based on. And then at the end we created wild folk together. So in the book, mm-hmm. the wild folk are, you know, these mythic sort of animal or plant deities basically mm-hmm. protect the, the, the animals or the plants of each species, you know? So for example, in California, we have quail. So there's quail folk or even like iris, wild iris folk or mountain lion folk. And, you know, they're kind of a bit like, you know, visually, maybe if you imagine Egyptian gods, the sort of thing with the animal head, something like that, you know, a mix of human and animal. And so I had them at the end who brainstormed a list of local animals to where we were in England and in Ireland. And then, together kind of tried to come up with a remotely accurate list of the sort of behaviors or ecologies of these animals (laughs) trying anyway like to get them to come up with with what they knew about the animals and then we created these deities you know maybe we gave them a name or some powers that they might have and i think this kind of brought it home a little bit more that they could shift the way that they maybe were thinking about the animals or the plants right around them, they might actually have this numinous mythic quality if they just thought about it a little bit differently. I don't know where then each child might have taken that, but my hope is just like the wild folk almost as ambassadors to bring you back into that kind of sense of interconnection and magic that there there is, you know, in the in the natural world, in the wild, in your garden, that I think makes you want to do something makes you even understand why you would want to protect something or stand for something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's really interesting. I agree with you that the, the way to most kids' hearts does seem to be through animals, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at the, yeah. the big books, um, when we were all children about animals, whether it would be Watership Down or the Duncton Wood series, I remember very vividly from when I was a teenager. I don't know whether you know them, but they were all very much about animals. And um, it does seem that children, perhaps more than adults, have, have a, a strong connection with animals that we, we need to harness while they're still young and, and still have that. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think, I mean, I had that enormously as a child. And I think that's part of why I wrote this book the way that I did. Um, mm-hmm. It was almost like a like a tribute to all those books that I read as a child that were so formative for me. Mm. And also, I think I was just going to add that I think, you know, maybe we've spoken before about animal tracking as something that I 
did a lot of in California and taught some. And I think I got a renewed sense of the wonder that I had as a child about wild animals when I started doing animal tracking, you know, learning the the track and sign of wild animals um, when I was an adult. And it was the same feeling, you know, and I tried to put a lot of that information and that passion into the book too. Yeah, it's one of the things that I love about um, Celtic mythology and some of the, well, folktales actually throughout Europe, not just in this part of the world where there is such a strong sense of animal wisdom uh, being oh. just as valid as, as human wisdom, but of course being different, you know, that you would go to the oldest salmon and ask his advice because he has a knowing, a way of seeing the world, a way of, of understanding the world that we as humans do not. And that interesting thread of respecting the wisdom of animals and not standing above them and superior to them, as we've come to believe we are, is so strong in our lineage that, that you know, it must still resonate when it comes even to contemporary uh, fiction such as your mm. writing. Mm. I think yeah that's yes I hope so I think I think I think animals get in very deep almost like it's we have a heart reaction you know and a spirit response before the brain even I think to what they carry Um, and I feel maybe that's what you know these wild folk characters in the book they they're really the even though it's two children and then these two wild hares that are their friends that are the main characters really the wild folk carry the book for me and I think if I were a child reading it that's what I would love I have no I don't know just me and as you said it's set sort of sort of set in a sort of point race um, a beautiful wild place in California north of San Francisco for those who don't come from that part of the world which Mm -hmm. I had the great pleasure of, of visiting last year and when when I mean you're from that part of the world and I know that's been a a landscape that's been very resonant for you when you were there either visiting or living as you did did you have a sense of of uh, the spiritus loci the genius loci that that really inspired those wild folk yes yeah I think that's such a good question I think I'm trying to remember I feel that it's probably started with the animal tracking specifically Mm. although maybe even before that you know when I was in college my final my thesis I studied creative writing on the east coast and my thesis was about Point Reyes I was longing for it so much from the east coast that I tried to create it was my first attempt at a novel and I I don't know that it went very well but (laughs) a lot of the um, (laughs) they never do they never know it's okay it's fine (laughs) nobody hope ever I hope nobody will ever see that one but um but I think a lot of the, the every, probably every one of the themes that I'm still working with began there. It felt like it, they did as an adult writer. And I tried to basically create um, almost to, how would I put it? I was, I was trying to create a novel that made the land itself of Point Reyes a character. Um, and I realized that this was a massive undertaking that was going to take me, you know, not two semesters, but actually the next six years to even begin to try to unravel as an idea. Mm-hmm. I realized that I needed to learn about everything. You know, I needed to learn about the geology more deeply. I needed to learn about all the animals and the plants more deeply. And so animal tracking really brought me into that because I realized, you know, in order to understand, for example, coyote sign tracks, you know, the scat, the poop, like what's in it, I would need to know what the coyote was eating. And that would be 
connected to seasonally what was happening with the plants, like what populations of animals there'd be a lot of, say gophers at a certain time, something else at another time. And so all of these things one by one led me into this a deeper understanding of the, the whole ecology of the landscape that I could then write from. And I think in doing that all the time, I was trying to investigate or trying to feel like who were the deities of this land, you know, because I'm, I'm, as we spoke about in If Women Was Rooted, I am very conscious of the fact that I'm not, you know, of indigenous descent in California, right? Like I'm white European mixed lineage from almost every country in Europe, I feel like, Western Europe and Eastern actually both. And so I was really conscious of trying to form my own relationship to the powers in that land and not just sort of appropriate the stories and myths and understandings of spirit that existed, you know, that were carried by the Coast Miwok people who were the, were and are the people in Marin County, which is where I grew up and where Point Reyes is. And so, you know, in writing The Wild Folk, in thinking about this concept of the wild folk, I think maybe my main obsession for many years was who are the gods, so to speak, the gods and goddesses, the spirits, the nymphs, what does that mean here? And I always felt like I could, I could, I had a feeling of them, but could never quite see them as clearly as I could sense um, the ones maybe that are in my ancestral heritage, which is a confusing feeling. You know, I've been reckoning with that since coming to Crete and the different feeling that I have. But had such, have, had and have such longing, you know, for that feeling of clarity or of, of belonging amongst those beings there um, in California. And I, I have a sense of them, maybe, I don't know. You know, I think sometimes in writing is the best place that we see this. Like when I write fiction, I see them. Do you know what I mean? And otherwise, right. the mind gets in the way a little bit. For sure. And, you know, if I look at a lot of this, as you know, from a, a Jungian or a depth psychology perspective and oh. um, the imagine in which the imagination is the foundation or the structure of the psyche. You know, we, we kind of perceive with the imagination and myth, of course, being the language of the psyche. So uh, imagination, I think, if we can harness it properly if we can learn how to use it properly and it's a skill I think we've lost track of in in today's world it really is the answer to to many of the questions we have about the world I think and that's yeah that's an interesting question that I still grapple with I mean as you probably know I do a lot more work now in America um, having discovered that the vast majority of people not only who were reading my books but who were signing up for my courses were coming from North America and that there was that great sense of longing for some lineage for some ancestral tradition which could somehow inform their reaction to their relationship with Mm -hmm. the very different places where their their feet are planted And, and so from my perspective it really is very much about using those old stories which seem so vivid because they've been written down and told and told and told again over the centuries and so we know the Baba Yagas we know the Kaliuk very well we you know we can picture them very well but mm-hmm. of course those characters are very much tied to their native places you know you can't take the Kaliuk out of Ireland and Scotland she's imminent in the landscape she's tied to wet and windy wild places 
But yes. you can use that vivid knowledge of the old woman archetype in your ancestral tradition to find the old woman in Point Reyes or in, um, or in the Arizona desert for that matter. I think they inform a way of being and a way of seeing the imaginal world that actually is very, very deeply rooting, even though it seems that, that you know, you're harking back to another, another um, continent. Yes, you know, this is very important and very true and so interesting and it makes perfect sense to me that your work that, that there's that such a hunger in the u.s for what you're doing and it's it's curious i'm laughing to myself just as a side thought because for some reason my my work they seem to want it more in europe <laughs> i don't really know what's going on That's I'm like, okay for some reason, this is just what's happening for now. Um, but it's interesting, just that that energy, you're bringing something from the old world that we really need in the US so much. And for some reason, I, I don't know why this is happening um, for my, with my books, but you know, I can't seem to find a publisher in the US for them. But in, in Europe, not just the UK, but other countries, it's, they, they feel at home, which is a curious thing. Um, I'm speaking mainly about the wild folk because it's actually set in California so interesting. There's something in it, that wildness maybe, but just to go back to what you were talking about, because it's so beautiful and important. I think, you know, as you know, from, from before, um, let's see, six, five, six years ago when, gosh, was it that long ago? When I was doing the Gray Fox epistles, my stories by mail, where I was sending out retellings of fairy tales to people around the world and, you know, in letters in the mail. And I was re I was, so taking stories from my ancestry, my lineage, and trying to place them in California as a way of doing what you're saying, you know, as a way of trying to understand who is the old woman here, who is, you know, the Tam Lin character, who, you know, all the different stories that I was looking at. And I found that it was very grounding for me and, and very potent thing to be doing. And at the same time, I still kind of came up against that feeling that you're saying, you, know, you can't take the Kaliak from... Scotland actually or Ireland you know you can't they didn't they fit and they don't fit you know and and I'm I'm put in mind of something that I heard a, this amazing um, Pomo woman Pomo is a California Indian tribe north of um, Marin County and Sonoma County and further north region named Karina Gould who is an amazing herbalist and she was teaching uh a herbalism class um, that I participated in. And she said something about how, you know, this is controversial um, in her community that she was even sharing with people who were not Native American. But she was saying, you know, actually all of this information, all of this wisdom that, that my people carry came directly from the trees and the stones and the plants at some point. And so actually she was saying, you know, almost like the trees were saying to her to tell people, come to us directly. Mm -hmm. Because maybe what we have said in the past isn't what we would say now. Maybe some of the stories, okay, I mean, obviously some of the bigger, bigger stories are going to be the same. They're very, very old. But actually, if we can go directly, you know, to the tan oak tree, let's say, in coastal California and ask and sit, you know, and observe and ask for long enough, then some of those stories start coming directly from there. And somehow blending, you know, as you're saying, these old archetypes that we carry ancestrally with that inv investigation and presence in the landscape directly, something happens in the middle, you know? 
And that's how stories grow and transform. And I always remember reading, being very struck when many years ago now, I read Leslie Marmon Silco's book, Ceremony. And, you oh, know, she yeah. had that old medicine man, Bethany, who was talking about ceremony, but stories are the same, exactly the same principle and saying that if you don't allow the ceremony needs to change with the times and with the people and to respond to whatever is arising in the world today then they die um, and mm -hmm. I've always thought that that's the same about stories now that seems you know on the surface of it to be a contradiction in what I'm saying where you can't take the Kaliuk story to the Arizona desert but you can you just take it as a different character that comes out of that land you know in the sense that as yes. you're saying all of the stories spring from the land whether it's from the trees from the rocks from the stones wherever it's all tied tied up with it together and Sylvia I just want to read a just a couple of paragraphs from If Women Rose Rooted where you're talking about this just to yes. um, for those who haven't perhaps read the book or don't remember this section so these are your words I began to wonder if I could walk with old stories over these landscapes plant them here see how they take to the bobcats the douglas firs the manzanitas and the kestrels my heritage and the traditions of my people are based on lands far away but can we break open the old stories like you break open a fruit, find the seeds and regrow them here? See if they can find their grey fox whiskers, their elk hooves, their red-legged frog songs. To see how they can shapeshift with the redwood coastal fog on their necks and the resin of chaparral on their tongues. I don't know what it's like to live in Scotland, so I have to find and to write the stories that are based here where I live. And so the story of the seal woman, the selkie who's lost her skin, becomes the story of a seal lion. My story, The Children of the Land under, the la under This Land, came from the old Irish myth, The Children of Lear, in which four children are turned into swans by their jealous stepmother. But this retelling, set along the wild California coast, begins when the famed pirate Sir Francis Drake drops the anchor of his golden hind along the shore of a Point Reyes estuary in the year 1579, altering the lives of the coast Biwak who have lived there for millennia. So what you're saying is that the characters, the specific form of the characters, the clothes they wear, and the landscapes which inhabit the stories might shift, but the heart of the stories really doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and um, that heart, you know, of those stories is so old, you know, that, that old wisdom stands the test of time i think there's some ancient yeah exactly exactly and so um yeah that was well we were talking i think probably back at the end of 2015 or thereabouts about all of this and mm -hmm. you were firmly rooted in point race <laughs> and now <laughs> uh, i I have been firmly rooted in so many places in my life before, as you know, and, and said I was never going to shift again. And here I am now, kind of like, you know, many, many years later, having, having been a serial rooter in lots and lots of different places. And you have, you have to, to So tell me about Crete and how that came across. And, and, and from the perspective of your relationship with place, how is that different from your relationship with Point Reyes? So, yeah, lots of questions I have about Crete. Yeah, yeah, it's, well, I mean, you know, hearing you read that passage, I was thinking about this, just how surprising, I mean, as, you know, I've said before, just how surprising it is to me to suddenly find that I am rooting myself in another place. Mm -hmm. I had such a sense that I was firmly rooted, you know, in California in this way forever, you know, not to say that a part of me isn't. I mean, this is, you know, the land of my childhood, my birth, everything, you know, it's very deeply in me, but some, something shifted in the last year, you know, some big life changes, this call to this part of the world, 
And I guess, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking that something started to shift in my writing actually before coming here. I'm just realizing this as I'm speaking. And it's interesting kind of as a compass almost how the, the creative the creative life, you know, the, the creative channel, wherever things are coming from, recognized some shift before maybe my conscious mind. Because I'm trying to think when I started doing this work more, maybe two years ago even, two or two and a half I came to Greece for a couple months and was really, really struck by the landscape and how it made me feel. Um, and the, the, the sense of, you know, the deities really being here still in a different way that I could access. Not that they're not in California. I think they are, but like literally the names, I mean, right. spoken in, in sort of at the commonly known and so when I came home that first time, I wrote the novella, um, The Dark Country, this mm-hmm. novella that was kind of set in a, you know, imaginary Kefalonia, which is where I was. And that kind of was the beginning when I'm just thinking about it. That was the beginning that something started shifting and my attention just turned just a little bit away from rewilding fairy tales in California, which is really where I'd been focused before. And it shifted into something in the very, very deep feminine, I would say. So a little more oriented towards stories and serpents. <laughs> a lot of snakes, actually. It was like the snakes yeah. started it, you know, speaking of animals, the snakes started it. And I'm still writing that, whatever is happening with that snake. Because I really felt the, the snakes a lot when I was in Greece and I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was just this snake sense of snakes everywhere I was. And only later did I realize how important that being was mythically, kind of in the pre, yeah. pre-patriarchal, like pre-Hellenic Mm-hmm. stratum of myth I'm rambling on here but just trying to trace the path <laughs> that took me to Crete just that I wrote that novella and then from there realized that there was a much bigger thing that wanted to be written that felt so big that it kind of overwhelmed me for probably about a year you know I had this vision of a very just like many books almost tracing um, kind of what happened from sort of before the rise of patriarchy, as we call it, in Europe, sort of pre, pre-Hellenic, pre-Indo-European, all the way through the witch-burning times and, you know, across the world and to California. It was just this massive project idea that I had, you know. So, um, but it began in Greece, tracing kind of what, what maybe the feminine had once been and what has happened along the way. And so... Maybe a year later, then I, I collected some more of my stories, including The Dark Country, into a book ca- called Our Lady of the Dark Country of short stories. It was all about kind of reimagining the future and the past of before patriarchy, matrilineal traditions, like just these threads that we can find in myth that kind of point to something earlier. And then somehow I ended up in Crete. <laughs> like, how did I end up in Crete? Oh my goodness. Um, well, it's, it seems that I've not I been there, but it, it seems like a pretty good place to, to end up. I think, yeah. So I think that in the work of um, Maria Gambutas, the Lithuanian archaeologist, very controversial woman, mm-hmm. but who I find, um, I did a lot of work kind of really reading deeply into her work and into the controversy around her and kind of coming to my own conclusions about what I felt about a lot of her conclusions, which I'm, I'm a Maria supporter, you know, (laughs) I know it's like in the scholarly world, it's a tricky thing, but I really find her to be quite visionary and that most of what she's saying feels really, really true. 
to me. Um, yeah. And it was just difficult at the time that she was doing it because she was uncovering something that was so not kind of in the mainstream archaeology about... Um, yeah, which was very male-oriented, wasn't very it? Very male-oriented. Still yeah, is. Still, actually, yeah. So she's still a tricky figure, but she was describing this culture that was, you know, she was noticing in Bronze Age Indo-European burials, kind of the next layer down, she was noticing something completely different that didn't indicate these um, kind of hierarchical warrior cultures, but it indicated something quite different. And she, I think it took her, you know, I remember reading an interview with her, it took her 25 years to even begin to see, a, to come to conclusions about the pattern that she was seeing, um, which seemed like a much more peaceful, matrilineal oriented culture with really different iconography in terms of what was important mythically. And I think this is where she became controversial because when you start making mythic interpretations as an archeologist or religious interpretations, you know, you get in trouble. But she was kind of recognizing this, I think worship of re the regenerative force of life, kind of the spiral as the shape at the center is how I think of it, the spiral of, of life to death to rebirth um, that we see in as kind of the, the, the dominant pattern of, of earth and of um, the energy of the earth in a way and, and life itself and nature. So life worshiping people, um, which she called old European. And so that lineage of old Europeans, kind of the last stronghold was, was Crete. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that's really why I came here. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's it's kind of interesting. And I've this, this winter, I've changed tack a little bit of my own writing and gone back to fiction for a while, which I haven't writ, written seriously till about 2008. And what I was doing was re, reimagining rather than rewriting, but reimagining some of the old fa fairy tales, folk tales, sometimes not the actual stories, but just the, the characters in them or a motif in them, reimagining stories about shape-shifting women. In, in all of the European traditions. And I found curiously, largely because of one story that I could not make fit into that collection, which was based on a, a Greek myth, I found it nagging at me and nagging at me. And I've always been a bit snooty about the Greek myths for a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were crammed down our throats when we were children. And I found it rather curious. You know, because those goddesses were in olive groves and, and, you know, and I was in some wet and wild and windy place that just didn't seem to bear a new relationship to it. Also, mm -hmm. then when I started working more with Jungian psychology and depth psychology, everybody, because it's so easy, everybody was always working with Greek mythology and it seemed that they wouldn't go anywhere else. So I started to get a little bit irritated mm -hmm. with Greek mythology. But then it kept nagging at me. And, I, and then I read that wonderful book. I can't remember. Madeline Miller, is it? Circe? Yes. Fabulous. And also, although it's a, a different, a slightly different thing, but still in the classical world, Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls. And then I started to conceive of an old story that I had had, which I really, really wanted to, to write again. And I thought sometimes I wonder if those myths, if those archetypes, those tropes and, and um, motifs aren't somehow calling out to us to be rehabilitated, you know, yes. because a lot of those myths, I mean, it's, they're terrible myths. They're yes. so patriarchal. You have Zeus raping and pillaging left, right, and center, and it's just like, what a pity to leave it at that. You know, maybe there's something more that we could do to give some of those characters voices again that are more relevant to oh, today's yes. world. And it's <laughs> interesting to kind of see the Greek mythology coming back around again. 
Yes. Yeah. I think, yes, this, you've touched on something that feels like maybe it's at the center of what's exciting me right now in, in my work and maybe what, what started to stir the first time I came to Greece and started thinking about these things. I think, you know, I loved that Circe, Madeline Miller, um, Mm. the book. However, I think since I've started to think about these, these myths a little bit differently, in other words, I almost sometimes I almost have the sense that I'm, I'm using my animal tracking skills, but on the myths, <laughs> you know, so I'm tracking when I read them, what are the pieces that feel the oldest? What are the pieces yeah. that feel indigenous to mm-hmm. an, an indigenous way, if that makes sense? The, the way yeah. that the old European way, I would say, like the way that was more earth um, honoring, earth worshiping, worshiping of the whole cycle of life and death and rebirth, like the whole web. Um, because I think a lot of what we see in the classic Greek myths is classic, right? It's classical. It's very, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very much what our Western civilization is founded on, these, these stories in a certain way, and, and the kind of thinking that created them. And often, actually, I find Greek myths really confusing because there's like, too, everybody has too many different roles, and Zeus is doing this and that, and like all these... It's almost like what you're seeing, I think, is the local gods coming into conflict with invading um, gods mm-hmm. and goddesses. Olympians. Yeah. And, and yeah. so you're seeing this weird mix where co- conquering people are trying to make something fit. It's sometimes, I think, what we see with Christianity, too, kind of fitting older pagan things into the fold. And it's a bit confusing to actually understand what's going on from a narrative perspective or from a... Um, yeah mythic perspective or, or from the perspective of like what are these what are these beings carrying who are they in the landscape and so you know even in in Circe I found one thing about that book was that I feel like she took I, I loved how she kind of re she gave Circe back her power again as a woman mm-hmm. but I found her take on Greek myth to be pretty much exactly at face value and where, yeah, I agree. Yeah. What I think actually most of the time what we're seeing is basically the story of conquest. And we're not really seeing the older story at all. Like they're almost erased, but you can find traces. You can find traces in, in almost every story of something that feels older. And that's really what makes me excited right now. And I think it's a beautiful thing to work with because there are so many of them and they were written down so long ago. So it's really rich. Exactly. And also they've, what people often forget, I think, and that's one of the reasons why I get very frustrated at some of the, the simplification, the excessive simplification that goes on in the Jungian world, that, mm. that yes. the Greek, Greek civilization lasted quite a long time. You know, so if yeah. you trace back any one character, and I did a lot of research into uh, the character of, um, of Eros for mm. um, a novel I never finished a little while ago, but which I'll probably come back to now, mm. um, and, and just seeing how the conception of that of that god who is always simplified as a god of love you know the little romantic cupid figure yeah. and the pretty little wings and oh for heaven's sake and how rich a, a figure that was for so much of and complex for so yeah. much of, of greek history and the ways in which we've trivialized just as we did with the figure say of hecate who everybody thinks now you know um as a a, a crone goddess leading up to one of uh, the, to the patrons of uh, Shakespeare's Three Witches, but way back in the day, she wasn't a crone at all. She was a beautiful, powerful, you know, uh, young but mature woman. Uh, and yet, that conception of her 
changed with Christianization and with patriarchy so that she became, she became very much more trivialized. And I think the complexity of myth in these lands is possibly uh, part of the problem, you know, that people just take a particular snapshot in time, as you're suggesting, and say, no, that's, that's who they were. And it yeah. wasn't often. No, no. And actually what I've been learning in my research here, you know, because so part of, I would add that part of why I'm here in Crete also is because I, I'm, I'm writing a novel set in Minoan times, so Minoan civilization, mm -hmm. which was the, um, as I was saying, kind of the last stronghold of old Europe. So Minoan civilization mm -hmm. lasted from, you know, the Neolithic, but like the height of it was really maybe we would say 2200 BC to 1400 BC, at which point around 1400, 1300, Mycenaean invaders from the Greek mainland took over mm -hmm. and they were more patriarchal and those are kind of those are kind of the guys we know of from homer so the trojan war those are mycenaeans mm -hmm. and then after that there was actually another wave of conquest and another and another basically forever since then but before that minoan civilization was very peaceful um, for a very long time and completely different kind of in its way of their way of thinking and being and and mythically as well, I think, from the traces that can be found. But what I've discovered really is that almost like the, the root layer of Greek myth and Greek culture, actually, really, it's Minoan. That's the oldest that was very high culture, so to speak, because it was so peaceful. The arts really flourished here in a way that wasn't happening um, in the same way where there was more violence um, on the mainland. And a lot of Mycenaean even Mycenaean culture on the mainland, they were being heavily influenced by Minoan Crete because of just the high level of art and imagery and mythic um, material. The problem is we don't really know what that was because the, the language that was written, um, linear A, has not been deciphered. So we can only guess at things. It's like, you know, in reading certain myths or texts, you can guess at what might have been part of the Minoan cosmology based on, for example, etymologies, you know, of words that are not Hellenic. They're not, they don't seem to have an Indo-European root um, or a Greek root. So for example, you know, this last month I was looking a lot at the myth of Narcissus mm -hmm. because I was interested in, in something I'd read saying that that word is not really a Greek, that ending, it's not ancient Greek. It's not Hellenic. It's something earlier. Also, the word hyacinth or um, hyacinthus, hyacinthos, another flower, that ending, those two endings are thought to be Minoan and not um, so older, you know. And so mm -hmm. I was thinking about this, this sort of strange story of Narcissus that we now have, thinking of what you were saying about the snapshot, you know, of this very vain, beautiful young, young boy who um, kind of thwarts every, you know, he's, he's cruel to anyone who falls in love with him. And... And Artemis punishes him by making him fall in love with his reflection in the pool, right? And then he dies from longing for himself. And I was yeah. thinking about it, like, what a weird story, actually. You know, what, what is this? What is this really about? Because somehow there's something moralistic in that story that doesn't feel very mythic to me. It doesn't feel earthy right. somehow. It's like, what? <laughs> and especially if the word Narcissus is not even Hellenic, then what's going on? Who is this guy? You know, who, um, mm -hmm. this flower, like this flower god, and I noticed that in Crete, there are frescoes of at least one, maybe two, of what they call the, the I think, the Prince of Lilies. 
know, this young man with holding lilies with a crown of lilies and this sense of the kind of the flower god. So the Hyacinthos is another one. And also even Adonis, you know, Aphrodite's lover. The anemone was named for him um, when he dies. That these young, beautiful gods, these young masculine, you know, deities, whatever you want to call them, who somehow are the, the flower. They're the, the beauty of the flowers arising in spring and then the mourning of um, their death at the height of summer. And that there's, a, there's several stories like this. Always, you know, the Narcissus or Adonis or Hyacinthos, they die, you know, at the height of their beauty. I mean, are more something about that. I was thinking that this is really the older thing going on with this story and with him. And I'm not sure what the thing in the pool is for Narcissus. I haven't figured out what that's about, but just that kind of investigation. Yeah. 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 Because if you look at Plato, I mean, so much Greek philosophy was founded on, on worrying about beauty and what beauty was and what beauty meant and what it meant to be beautiful. And beauty is such a, um, a strong value, such an important value to, to be upheld, whatever it might have been. So, yeah, that, that would make sense. Mm, um, and beauty, but also I think just I think there's a there's a recognition of the, the life and death cycle of the earth mm-hmm. in that story. And interesting that the you know, the flower associated with the masculine, actually, in this case, you know, we think of that as such a feminine thing, but it's interesting, right. these flower gods, and they sort of point to maybe a, also a wholly, a wholly different dynamic between genders, or ways of thinking of gender in a pre-patriarchal yeah. culture. I think there's also mm-hmm. that layer there, which I find very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how... Um... Again, I've not been to Crete, but it seems to me that much of what you're probably experiencing is what many people experience coming to Ireland, which obviously is a place I know very, very much more. It, it, it's, it's as if the, the myths and the images, the archetypal beings who arise out of this landscape and who we meet in the stories are so very vivid in these places and so very alive, you know, because the stories are, are still told. Uh, yes. Most of the the Irish sagas, the Irish stories, are certainly in the Gaeltacht, the Irish-speaking area where I live, are a living tradition. You know, they're still telling stories of Finn McCool in 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 the houses, and these the stories shift and they grow. So people seem to come here, and mm. I think one of the reasons often why they're so taken with the place and why it's so memorable and why they find it really hard to tear themselves away isn't just because it's a beautiful country and the people are lovely and funny. It's because there is this real sense of the land and the archetypes and stories embedded in the land kind of like jumping up and shouting hello hello you know (laughs) here's another visitor how are you whereas in in other places that I've lived in parts of Scotland in the Outer Hebrides which is very much less inhabited where the Christian church has pretty much wiped out all of the old stories you get this desperate sense of retirement you know the stories and the the archetypes have retired into the land and it's very much harder it needs a lot more work to dig them out so I'm guessing Mm -hmm. that's how it is in in Crete that you feel literally as if you're you're walking on on myths and and uh, and breathing in stories and archetypes yes I, I love what you're saying and I think I think there's something you know when I visited Ireland actually in um September this past year um, I felt a similar feeling to what I feel here. And I, it's not a feeling that I have when I'm in England, for example, um, just by comparison. Yeah. Um, not, the, not in the same way. In Ireland, I felt like, oh my God, I almost felt like I got hit by a, by a mm. awesome story. I mean, just like, wow, it was so powerful, yeah. the feeling there. It was, and I think 
maybe even more there than here in a certain way, what, what the difference that we feel when, when the stories are still actually being tended, that something is still being tended um, and given energy by humans that we actually really do play such an important role in keeping something unseen alive or present with us, you know, just visiting certain churches I'm, I'm remembering in Ireland um, and feeling that almost like there's a shiny feeling in places where you can feel that people still come. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Because in Ireland, you know, no, the relationship between the people and the land hasn't always been good in, in the sense right. that, you know, people have done things which, which in the long run have not turned out to be good mm. for the land. But they've always, always, always been engaged with it and, and, and never turned their backs on it. It is, as you will have seen, an intensely rural country for all that Dublin and Cork think otherwise, yes. you know. Yes. Yes whole economy that the power structure is very rural and so you have people continually interacting with the land in whatever ways and and very much keeping those stories alive and in Ireland as again as you'll be aware for all of the power of the Catholic Church and clearly that it has had a lot of power over the centuries nevertheless you have had running in parallel in direct parallel and in no apparent sense of opposition to it you've had the Krevshi what we call the fairy faith you know uh -huh. the leaving the milk out the fairies the belief in in the fairy trees and you mustn't cut down um a, a hawthorn a sol a solitary hawthorn tree because the fairies might uh, be cross at you all of that, that kind of thing which people dismiss as superstition is not superstition it's a direct consequence of living in the land and being aware of those energies and those archetypal uh themes and and characters that that are that have been with you for generations and absolutely yeah it, yeah. it keeps them alive I think that I think that's very much the case here too. The the church, it's Greek Orthodox here, but similar feel you know, the feeling the the traditions running side by side. And I and you know, I'm I do very much have that sense here that the the beings, whoever they are, are very close to the surface. Um, I don't know that, you know, certain of these stories don't seem to be being told maybe in the same way, but other traditions in, in song and in dance um, are really, really, really alive still. And I think, and just even in maybe the way, you know, certain foods, even I think of even food traditions, maybe because they're so connected to the land, all of these things help carry the aliveness of the story in a way. Um, but, but, at the Minoan level, like I do feel like I'm doing excavation, almost story excavation, you know, like the crazy American who came here to <laughs> um, uncover, you know, these, these stories. And so, but sometimes I think a lot of the things that I've been investigating or thinking, they're not really being talked about so much, but they do feel that they come directly and very quickly right out of the stones almost, you know, when I go somewhere. And this is kind of a crazy feeling for me. I'm not used to he almost hearing or feeling things so clearly as here. And this is one of the big um, things that struck me coming here is it's almost like the clarity or the nearness of whoever these beings are sort of giving me a sense of, of um, what the mythic layer is. It's very close to the surface and really powerful. And maybe, you know, sometimes there's definitely a resonance in landscape between California and Crete and Greece in general. You know, they're both Mediterranean um, landscapes. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. both prone to earthquake and fire, you know, like right. they're both, so the plant communities have a similarity 
And in some ways, I feel like my understanding of California and the, the kind of intact wildness there helps me to understand what this landscape maybe once was like as well, because it's definitely, as you said about Ireland, the land has not always been managed in a way that's very healthy. It's very um, occupied, you know. It's not particularly right. wild anywhere, but you can feel those energies really close to the surface still somehow. Like, like the stones are holding onto them. Exactly. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I'm, I'm looking forward to you finishing one day your uh, yes. new novel because it sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'd love to read. And I wonder if I could just finish with one question. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a big question. You've probably already answered it, but I, I wonder if you could try and encapsulate in the way that you think about it now, recognizing that these things always change over time. And in three years time, I'll ask you the same question. You'll say something different, but <laughs> how would you kind of encapsulate your vision for your work, what you're trying to do with it? Uh, why, why you're, <laughs> I said it was big. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Very big. Well, I think in a way, maybe in essence, it, it hasn't changed from maybe even from when I, you know, I was speaking about the, the, my first attempt at a novel about Point Reyes, um, where I was trying to make the land a character. I think maybe the biggest thing in essence that I hope to do in my writing is to kind of, well, one way that I like to think about it, I'm sort of spiraling around this in my mind right now, how to narrow down what I want to say. I like the idea of deep ecology as applied to the writing of fiction in the sense that, you know, how can I as a writer allow the whole living world to be the character in the writing? Because so often in fiction, in the, in the written tradition that we have, only humans are important and everything else is the backdrop, you know? Right. And so what I'm trying to do, and I don't see it happening so much in Western writing, I would say, is that the land, the animals, the plants are characters of equal value to the humans in the way that almost having the novel reflect the living world, the novel reflect an ecosystem or an ecology. So all my writing kind of to, to show a different way of being in relationship to the living world around us. And I think that's why I use myth so often as a model, because as we were speaking to in its oldest essence, it's coming right out of the earth. And that's exactly what myth has always done, you know, with the as you, you talked about before, the ancient salmon and the well at the beginning of the world that, that in the myths, we've, we all already know this, that all beings are subjects, not objects in these stories. They're all subjects of, uh, and the animals and plants of, of more greater wisdom even than we have. And so to try to bring this sense into kind of the, the contemporary world of fiction really um, right. is what I hope to do. And just each kind of new project is another way in, right? Like rewilding stories in California, now kind of almost going deeper back into the substratum sub of my own heritage, all the way back, way, way back, you know, into Minoan Greece. I'm trying to find what's there. It's kind of all circling around this same goal, which I think, you know, in, in very simple terms is probably just to reconnect myself and my readers to the living world, like to the land and the earth um, and the magic of it, the true deep sense that we are not separate in any way and the healing of that. I'm thinking of Ceremony, Leslie Marmon Silko, that beautiful book. 
and that, that stories really are medicine and we need that healing so much right now as like the first place to start even to bring us home again if we don't have the stories that show us how to belong how do we belong you know i write them for myself as first in a way so that i can learn and then hope that that helps other people too if we can imagine it then then in a very real sense we can we can become it exactly that's the first place to start right yep yep uh, indeed it is indeed. well brilliant uh, thank you sylvia that's a a good note of resounding agreement so. on uh, on which so. so thank you for taking the time uh, away from your beautiful landscape and your writing and for those of you who are listening who would like to follow up with uh, sylvia's work her website is at www.sylvialinstead.com um, it'll also be on the podcast page for people to find. And Sylvia also has a Patreon page for the kind people who support her writing, uh, where she provides many, many wonderful things every month from uh, poems and stories and retellings and letters from, from Crete and the various places that she is, which, which look very wonderful. So if you would like to support Sylvia's work, you can go over to patreon.com and search for her and you'll find her there. Thanks mm. again, Sylvia. Thank you so much, Sharon. It was a complete pleasure. Thank you all for listening to the Surgical Podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow our work at the Hedge School, where you'll find free resources as well as paid-for courses designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. It's about dreaming, and it's about waking up. Above all, it's about dreaming ourselves awake. Our podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you're able to support our work, and you can do so from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for The Hedge School. Or you can find a link on our website at www.thehedgeschool.org. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time.